Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2020 Dublin Festival of History, best-selling author Robert Harris returns to the festival to talk about his book V2, the story of the deadliest rockets of the Second World War. The episode is moderated by journalist and broadcaster Edel Coffey and was recorded via Zoom on the 27th of September 2020. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us tonight um, for what I'm sure will be an absolutely wonderful and fascinating interview with Robert Harris. Um, Robert, the book is a fabulous read, and I wanted to start by just asking you a little bit about the V2 rocket. Um, It was such a terrifying uh, instrument of war. Uh, What drew you to it? Why did you think this is what I want want to write about? Uh, well, hi, Adele. Lovely to talk to you. And uh, hello, everybody. Uh, yes, um, it happened uh, about four years ago. There was a um, uh, obituary in the Times in London of a woman called Eileen Young Husband, who, who uh, died at the age of 95. She'd been an officer in the Women's Air Force in England, and she had been sent out to uh, Belgium to uh, try and combat the V2s uh, into a newly liberated town in a bitterly cold winter and with a curfew billeted on local family. The place was starving. There were still said to be German sympathisers around. And uh, they were put in a bank vault, a team of eight women, and they had to make calculations just using a slide rule. And they were... Each V2, which they were launched from a place about 70 miles north at London, and they were told that if they could uh, break the calculations of the curve of the rocket, uh, its trajectory, within six minutes, then they could stop the next one because the RAF could bomb it. So that was the short thing that I read in this obituary, and I just thought, my God, that's an interesting story. I wanted to write about a, a woman doing something interesting in, in the war and significant, and this I'd never come across before, uh, and so that was the start of it. It was it wasn't so much the rocket as her that uh, interested me to begin with. Hmm. Well, d- tell me a little bit about Kay, then, uh, who is your female character in the Women's Air Force. She was obviously inspired by um, by this woman, a young husband. Yes, absolutely. She's completely different, I should say. Uh, she does a different job. Uh, Eileen Young, husband, was one of those women who worked in what was called the filter room, which you may have seen in movies. They're like croup- girls in a casino, croupiers moving you know, tokens across. They were getting radar information of Germans coming in and they moved the tokens. It was a much more sophisticated job than that, but that was what I saw. Uh, my uh, heroine, uh, Kay, uh, works in photo reconnaissance, uh, which was housed in a big place, not far from where I live, actually, in near Marlow, in a big country house. And uh, they looked at analysed millions of photographs during the war, and they actually discovered the Germans were building the V2s. So I thought that would be a more interesting character that she's, you know, in terms of how much she knew, uh, and, and also in personality terms, she's a much different character to Eileen. But the job, the actual mission, uh, that was what inspired me, and that I took from uh, this real, real life case. Why did you want to write about a woman in the war? Is it because you think that women's role was overlooked, or maybe not given the attention it should have been given? Um, 
Partly that, yes. I've done something similar in my second novel, Enigma, which has uh, female uh, codebreakers in it. Um, and I, I was just rather attracted to the idea of just the setting uh, and the fact that... And I wanted to write a novel with a big woman's character in it for a while, simply because most of the characters in my novels are people who are at the centre of events but slightly overlooked. They tend, People tend to, you know, they are secretaries or they're ghostwriters or, you know, and I like... So I was naturally drawn to the idea of a woman who was in a central place but who was somehow slightly disregarded, you know, and so I felt sympathetic. To that role, that was so that drew me to it a lot, and also there were the rockets. Let's not let me let, you know. I'm not going to pretend I don't have a. I haven't always had a slight fascination with this uh, astonishing thing that the Germans built. I thought the idea of this team of eight women combating this supersonic uh, space age weapon was fascinating in itself. Mm-hmm. And what they were combating it with. Um, was quite incredible too. Uh, both the technology for the rockets and the, I'm going to say technology that the women were using, as in, like you say, their slide rule and some mathematical equations to try and find the launch sites. It, it was quite basic, really, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. It was that contrast, which is slightly the same with Enigma, actually. There's this huge, huge German war machine, and there's just people with pencils and papers and mm-hmm. curious machines trying to break the code. And with this, uh, the, I should just perhaps explain that the rockets were launched from uh, the woods uh, around The Hague on the coast of Holland, which was the only point the Germans could were within the 200-mile range to hit London, and they were launched from mobile launchers in the in the tree, hidden in the trees, uh, and the British could do nothing to stop them. But once they got into Belgium, to this area seventy miles south, they they had high looking radars, so they could look north uh, to where the rockets were launched from. Uh, they were launched. The radars were able to pick them out very briefly as they shot up to space. I mean, these things went sixty miles into space and came down five minutes later on to London. As a, they would travel at 3,500 miles an hour. But the, the theory was that if you got the, a few coordinates in the middle of the, uh, the trajectory and then the point of impact in London, with these two sets of figures, you could work back to the origin of the curve because the missiles were ballistic, so they, they obeyed what's called a parabolic curve and that is mathematically calculable. That was the theory. So as women armed with pencils, paper, and slide rules against this, well, the most sophisticated uh, piece of machinery in the world, beyond question. Um, You actually went uh, to Holland, didn't you, for your research and walked around those forests. Did you see anything? Was there anything remaining there? No, well, there's not really much to see at all, but it was you know, it was uh, November, uh, Saturday morning, just as like the opening of my novel. And uh, it's a, it was Scherbingen, it's called. It was an out-of-season seaside resort, which is something I love anyway, all the shuttered hotels. And though it was atrocious. The waves were coming in, the sea was up, the uh, rain was blowing, it was drenching and the woods were dark and dripping and foul and I just thought, this is wonderful. This is fantastic. And I could practically hear these trundling, you know, 
tractors pulling these uh, rockets to be erected and launched from these woods. So uh, I wasn't there for very long, you know, just an hour or two, but it was enough to make me feel, yeah, this is, you know, there isn't much left in the war that hasn't been written about, uh, fact or fiction. But actually this hasn't really. I mean, the process by which these things were launched and the, the stories of the men that launched them haven't been told. So that was something new. It was something new to write about. So I had two new things, really. My woman in Belgium and the, and the German rocket engineer uh, character I invented who's having to fire these damn things. Which I want to talk to you about or whom I want to talk to you about. But first, you're going to give us a flavour of the novel uh, by reading a little sure. bit. Sure. Thank you. Yes. I, this reminds me of when they used to interview Harold Macmillan when he was plugging his memoirs and he used to pretend to be blind. So he'd always say, yes, as I think you'll find, and would hold it like this for, for about half an hour as he read through. But I won't, I won't do such a cheap. Thank you. Cheap <laughs> stunt. Uh, well, let me read uh, just then uh, a minute or so. Uh, this is uh, from page seven of the book, so it's very early on. My um, engineer is called Rudy Graf, Dr. Graf, and he's been sent from Pinamundo, where the rockets were developed, to uh, the Dutch coast to be a liaison with the r- artillery men who fired the rockets. And th- this was an actual role that uh, some of these scientists had to uh, take part in. And um, th- as the novel opens, uh, uh, an SS officer has arrived called Bivak, um, or Bivak, Bivak, I think it should be pronounced. He is a, uh, a sort of fanatic, and, but, and he's come to observe. So this is uh, the very beginning of the novel where he's asked to see a launch. The road with its ornamental street lamps stretched ahead, crowded on either side by trees, once a place for a stroll or a bicycle ride, now shrouded overhead by camouflage netting. At first it looked empty, but as they penetrated deeper, it became apparent that along the tracks running off to right and left, the woods concealed the main business of the regiment, Tents for storage, tents for testing, scores of vehicles, a dozen missiles wrapped in tarpaulins and hidden beneath the trees, shouts and the throb of generators and of engines revving carried on the damp air. Bivak had stopped asking questions and was striding ahead in his eagerness. The land to their left fell away. Through the branches a lake glinted, dull as pewter, with an island and an ornamental boathouse. As they rounded the sweep of the bend, Graf raised his hand to signal they should stop. 200 metres further on, in the centre of the lane, hard to distinguish at first because of its ragged green and brown camouflage, a V2 stood erect on its launch table, solitary, apart from a steel mast to which it was attached by an electrical cable. Nothing moved around it. A thin stream of vapour, vented silently from above the liquid oxygen tank, condensing in the misty air like breath. It was as if they had come upon some huge and magnificent animal in the wild. Bivak instinctively dropped his voice and said quietly, can't we go closer? This is as far as it's safe, Graf pointed. Do you see the support vehicles have withdrawn? That means the firing crew are already in their trenches. From his raincoat pocket, he pulled out his ear defenders. You should wear these. What about you? I'll be all right. Bivak waved them away. Then so shall I. A klaxon sounded. A startled game bird, it must be a real survivor, Graf thought, as the soldiers liked to shoot them to supplement their rations, struggled out of the undergrowth and took clumsy flight. Its hoarse, panicked cries it flapped noisily down the road echoed the note of the klaxon. Graf said, 
She weighs four tons empty, 12 and a half fueled. On ignition, the fuel is gravity fed. That yields eight tons of thrust, still lighter than the rocket. Her voice carried over a loudspeaker. Ten, nine, eight. Sparks, vivid as fireflies in the gloom, had begun cascading from the rocket's base. Suddenly, they coalesced into a jet of bright orange flame. Leaves, branches, debris, dirt whipped into the air and flew across the clearing. Graf turned and shouted at Bywak. Now the turbo pump kicks in. Thrust goes to 25. Three, two, one. His last few words were lost in a sharp-edged, cracking roar. He clamped his hands to his ears. The umbilical cable fell away. A mixture of alcohol and liquid oxygen forced by the turbo pump into the combustion chamber and burned at a rate of a ton every seven seconds, produced, or so they claimed at Pienemunda, the loudest sound ever made by man on Earth. His whole body seemed to tremble with the vibrations. Hot air buffeted his face. The surrounding trees were brilliant in the glare. Like a sprinter poised on a starting block a split second after the pistol was fired, the V2 at first appeared stalled. Then abruptly she stopped, shot straight upwards, riding a 15-metre jet of fire. A thunderous boom rolled from the sky across the wood. Graf craned his neck to follow her, counting in his head, praying she would not explode. One second, two seconds, three seconds. At exactly four seconds into the flight, a time switch was activated in one of the control compartments, and the V2, already 2,000 metres high, began to tilt towards an angle of 47 degrees. He always regretted the necessity for that manoeuvre. In his dreams, she rose vertically towards the stars. He had a last glimpse of her red exhaust before she vanished into the low cloud towards London. Lovely, thank you. Um, and you bring me on to a question I did want to ask you about um, Rudy Graf, which is how he began making those rockets and the idealism behind it, which was to send somebody to the moon and how that was that idealism and that, um, that scientific knowledge was commandeered by politics um, to be used for war. And I wonder just how difficult it must have been for somebody like that to have to deal with that moral conflict. Um, did you think about that when you were writing his character? Oh, very much, yes. I mean, the book is, there's two parts of the book, really. Well, three, I suppose. There's the cave story in Belgium. There's the Rudigraf story and the, the two of them, you know, one's firing the missile, one's trying to stop them firing them. And then there is this account, this history, really, of the Faustian bargain, which is essentially what it was, between what started out, really, as a group of teenagers, 16 years old. Um, Werner von Braun was the head of the rocket program, a real-life character, obviously, and my uh, hero, Graf. Uh, and they fooled around with rockets in, on waste ground to the north of Berlin. Uh, and um, then Hitler came to power, and the German army was taking a great interest in these rockets, and suddenly money was no object. And so, uh, and, and Werner von Braun was a great salesman, and he was also quite amoral. I mean, so long as he could get this rocket built, um, he was prepared to do anything. Join the Nazi party, fine. You know, he wasn't a Nazi, really, I don't think at all, but he just joined because that's the thing you had to do to get the money. And indeed, when... It was more successful than he took SS rank as well, honorary rank, you know, again. And they sort of said so they set off down. They were, they were idealistic. They wanted to go to the moon, but the only way they could get to the moon was to build a weapon for the army. Mm -hmm. uh, and they ended up building 
the V2, which first flew successfully in October 1942. Uh, and a few weeks later, the Stalingrad calamity happened to the German army. And um, in the following spring, uh, Werner von Braun flew to see Hitler to show him the film of the test launch. Um, and Hitler, by that point, was looking for some means to stave off defeat. And he saw this astonishing rocket taking off, as I've just described it, and was entranced and ordered that 10,000 of them should be built. Um, and so, um, you know, this, this group of idealists suddenly found themselves um, presiding over the mass manufacture of a weapon purely to attack civilians, uh, and which, in order to build 10,000 of them, uh, they had to uh, create a huge underground factory which uh, w was done, uh, but at a huge human cost. 20,000 men, slaves, died building the factory and building the V2, um, which is nearly five, times, that nearly five times as many as were actually killed by the rocket being fired. Um, you create a, an amazing sense of what it must have been like to experience um, these missiles. Um, was that taken from first-person testimony... Um, there, I presume there are real um, people's names included like, the, when one of them hit Woolworths. It's, it's really quite moving. You can see that there were clearly mothers and babies in the shop who were killed. Um, what, what Was that all? And Kay survives um, a missile uh, strike as well. Was that all taken from real person testimony? Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. The... Uh... All the missiles' impacts in the novel are, are true, uh, you know, correct, with the casualties uh, and where they hit. And um, so that provides a sort of framework of fact. And the novel takes place over about five or six days at the end of November. Uh, and on the Saturday morning, there was a bomb, uh, which was known as the Warwick Court rocket, which fell on Ho in Hoburn in central London, midway between the two, two of the ends of court. Uh, and then about an hour and a half later, there was the worst V2 incident of the war in terms of casualties, which, as you say, a V2 struck uh, the Woolworths department store in, in Deptford and New Cross Road. Um, and the, this store just had a consignment of saucepans, which was a scarcity in the war. And so all the local women, there was, somehow they all got to hear, the Woolworths has got saucepans, and so they all headed to Woolworths and taking their children. Uh, and there were sweet counters. So the children of the sweet counters, the women were getting the pots and pans. The V2 slammed down onto this um, store, a plant through all four floors, and it detonated and killed 160 people. Uh, and that is described in the novel. And I felt I had to, I must give the casualties, I must convey in fairness to the victims, you know, the horror of this of this thing. And it was terrifying. The, the bang, you know, it came in at a speed of over twice the speed of sound. So um, if you were actually hit by it, the only thing that people, survivors, said was that you could feel a slight change in the air pressure for a fraction of a second because it was coming in a compressing the air and pushing it out of the way. And then and then you would hear nothing. But for anyone else in London, they heard a kind of a, a double boom, a boom of the, of the sound barrier being broken as the rocket came in, and then the crash of the explosion. These reverberated across London. You know, you could hear it 10 miles away. 
And when at the peak of this, there were seven or so, eight hitting London a day, you can imagine the fear, fear that it spread. Um, and no warning. Just that. No warning. There was no, it, 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 it came in, you couldn't see it. It, it was traveling, what, at about 2,000 miles an hour, so that you would, you know, if, you, if it was coming over there, you wouldn't see it. Maybe at night you might see a flash in the sky, but during the daylight, no. Uh, so the British government actually put out that um, gas mains were exploding, um, and people became very cynical about this. They said, have you heard about Hitler's secret weapon, the, ex- the flying gas main? Um, and eventually, of course, they had to, once the Germans announced that they were firing rockets at London, then Churchill announced it too. But that was about two months after the campaign began. It's interesting you should mention that gas mains, Joe, because there is a black humour that does rise up during wartime. And, you know, all the way when I was reading this book, my mind kept coming back to our current situation globally, the pandemic. And I know you wrote this during the pandemic, but it struck me as there's an awful lot of similarities between what we're going through now and um, wartime. You know, we're working together against a common uh, enemy. Um, Your life has changed and curtailed in many ways. It becomes normal, even though it's not pleasant and I wonder, was that in your mind when you were writing it, or is that just something that filtered through? No, it definitely became more in my mind. I mean, the one I did have an opening line for the book, which is I dropped in the end, but which was my, which was what kept me going with it, or, or, or I kept as a sort of talisman. Uh, it is amazing to think that within living memory, one European country was occupying another in order to fire ballistic missiles at the capital city of a third. Um, And that does, I do find it extraordinary that 76 years ago tonight, London was being hit by ballistic missiles, and there's plenty of people who are still alive who would remember this. Uh, So I started off with that, that, that something so modern, so extraordinary could have happened within our lifetimes, and I just wanted to write about the people caught up in it. Then uh, I'd written about a quarter of the book, and this thing that had been peripheral, this Chinese virus thing, it suddenly, you know, it was like drum beats got louder and louder, and then suddenly, you know, um, everything, we were all locked down. And at that point, I, I sort of almost, well, I did pretty well stop writing the book. I mean, if Armageddon is coming, you've got other things to do than sit and write a novel about the V2, quite frankly. <laughs> but then... When it's after a couple of weeks, I thought, well, if nothing else, I should come out of this experience with a novel, if I can, at the end of it. I know this sounds a crazy way to work, but it is the way, as a journalist, I've always written my novels. So, uh, of course, the novel is therefore infected, no pun intended, with, with, uh, with the pandemic, with that sense of disruption, uh, that sense of dread, uh, uh, that sense of the body count, the toll rising uh, day by day, week by week. Um, and, yeah, I couldn't really get away from that. Um, you know, we are a very fortunate generation. I mean, we've had 60, 70 years of pretty well, in effect, peace. We've had growth. We've had expanding opportunities, you know, and now it's our turn to have what our parents and grandparents' generations had, certainly here in uh, 
England, the, the, this colossal disruption to all your plans, all your hopes, your wedding, your you, you know, school days, uh, your career. You know, it's easy. It's much easier. You're not being sent abroad to fight or anything like that. But there is the, still the same, the same feeling of life, normal life having gone. And everybody just wants their normal life back. You, know? mm-hmm. um, you mentioned there about the fact that it is extraordinary to think that in living memory for some people, London was being bombed tonight. Um, I I wonder, I know you've spoken about this in interviews before, and I, I did want to ask you about Brexit and, you know, where do you think that will all end? Because it does seem like it's, it's, it, it has resonances with um, 80 years ago in my mind. Anyway, maybe I'm, being extra dramatic here but what do you think do, uh, about the trajectory that britain is on now well um, in a historic context i should add yeah i mean there's, there's it adds to just to this general sense of um an uncertain future um and uh, a sense of something unraveling you know the i don't know what's going to happen with brexit i just sort of feel that um you know, we've been very lucky. We've had this 60 years of stability. Um, and rather like the period before the First World War, you know, periods of stability lead to complacency. Uh, people then, uh, and boredom, actually, people just want to do something new. They start, you know, they, it's almost human nature. That, you know, it's like the seven-year itch only on a global scale. Uh, and so there is this sort of sense of, you know, let's let's give it a kick and see how see what it's going to be like. Uh, and so there is that that sort of feeling. And I don't know what it's going to be like. I mean, I obviously now it's going to happen, uh, and you know, we'll just have to see what it is. By and large, in life, I've found things are neither as good nor as bad as you think they are going to be. Uh, so uh, we shall see. But I, it's an odd thing to write a novel set in the Second World War. I sort of appreciate people say, you know, can't we leave up? You're obsessed with it and so on. And I am pretty obsessed, with, uh, uh, f- fed up or bored with the whole, you know, 1940, we stood alone kind of legend uh, um, that we get. But something about the V2 seemed to me modern. The weapon was modern. The attempt to stop it was modern. It was the beginning of, an, of the new world, you know, so that's why I wanted to write it, um, because this country, as you know, as I've written about before, is infected with nostalgia for the war. I mean, there is there was. Let's not be modest about it. There was something heroic about standing up to Hitler. But uh, if it becomes your national myth uh, in the way that it is done, there is a danger in that, and this is the reason. The other thing I wanted to convey in the book was the complexity of a country like Belgium or Holland, occupied for four or five years, um, you know, collaborators, um, people who join the German army because they think they're going to win, uh, being bombed by the British and the Americans. Uh, The complexity of their war, which helped lead to the creation of the European Union, is is so different, uh, and uh, so I wanted to express that in the novel as well. What you said there about um, the 
the V2 being almost modern and and the tools that were used against it being almost modern. Um, is that what makes um, historical fiction so satisfying in that we can see the beginnings of our modern world? We can see those reflections of our modern world um, reflected back at us. Um, is that why you're attracted to historical fiction? Is it a, a very satisfying way of explaining the world as it is now? Yes, it is. I mean, I find a present day, I found this even 20 years ago, I found a present day very hard to catch hold of, you know, uh, especially, say, politics. Um, to write a political novel, which would seem the logical thing for me as I was a political journalist, uh, it's nevertheless very hard. For a start, it's hard to improve upon the strangeness, the almost fictional nature of the of our current politicians well that was true 20 years ago it's even more true now so it's quite hard to write about them but if you can find some means of universalizing what's happening now by going to the past rome obviously for me for writing about politics then then you can get at the present day better and one is drawn to a historical period or a story um, precisely because it has some relevance. Otherwise, one wouldn't be writing about it. It may even be unconscious. Uh, but there's something about a story or a period, and you think, that's interesting. Now, let me find out more about that. And then you see characters and you start to write it. You're writing about your own world, of course. Um, uh, but you're doing it in a way, hopefully, um, which, which is interesting and universalizes whatever it is you're going through now. When you wrote your novel, The Ghost, um, which was contemporary, uh, did you come across difficulties, apart from, I imagine, the difficulty of Tony Blair being a bit cross with you? Um, <laughs> did you come across difficulties like that? Did you, did you find it difficult to, um, to use that story to tell a contemporary story? Or did you find you preferred using history to tell your stories? Well, it was a bit of a... a I mean, having written about Cicero and gone around saying, you know, I don't want to write a contemporary political novel, uh, I then found myself, uh, the, the year that Imperia came out, writing a contemporary political novel. I'd had the idea of a, for a ghostwriter uh, as a character about seven years earlier, and but I and originally thought of writing as a stage play, actually, which is something I'd always wanted to do, with just three characters, the ghostwriter, whoever's memoirs it was he was ghosting, and the wife of this person who would at some point tell him the truth. Uh, and so the, the ghostwriter would have a moral dilemma. Uh, and so it was a triangular idea. And actually, if you read the novel or see the film, you can see actually it's one set and really three or possibly four characters. Uh, but I couldn't find the, the what this person who was having his memoirs ghosted, who he would be and what he or she would have done. And then uh, the Iraq war came along. And then I heard a radio broadcast and someone said, um, oh, Tony Blair will have to go and live in exile because he'll be prosecuted for war crimes. And I suddenly thought, ah, now that gives me... <laughs> That's interesting because it gives me possibly a location, which is something I always need um, when I'm starting writing. Where would this thing be set? He's in, you know, he's in exile. And uh, suddenly then the whole book began to come together. But it was, yeah, of course it's trickier. And I did, I, I mean, I tried not to make it a complete Roman Aclay uh, and tried to 
I mean, for instance, anyone who knows Tony Blair knows that religion is absolutely, his religious faith is absolutely core and central to his personality. The prime minister in my novel has no interest in religion whatsoever. So I tried to make some, you know, not make it completely mm. uh, a crude kind of spitting image caricature. Also, I tried to give him good lines, you know, not uh, make him quite a sympathetic character. <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, like he's completely unrecognisable. So. Um, do you find you have any moral conflicts or dilemmas when you're writing um, characters that might be inspired by real people, past or present? Is there a moral obligation as a historical fiction writer, say, to um, I, I don't even know to what to to be honourable, to uh, to pay respect? Um, do you ever, do you have to think about that when you're writing historical fiction? Yes, I do. I mean, you know, I think one, well, no, first of all, you're writing a novel. So, you know, there are certain demands that a reader perf- properly expects. They're not coming to you for, his- for historical lecture. If they were, they would be going to a historian. They're coming to you for character, uh, for drama, and uh, all the rest of it. So in the, if there's ever a dilemma, a conflict between history and the demands of fiction. I will always choose the demands of fiction, but I will always try to keep within the spirit of what happened, and I'll try not to put in something that I know didn't happen. I, I'll try to 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 write something that could have happened. That's been the rule, by and large, which I've tried to follow. And I do think one owes it, especially for people who some of their descendants might be alive, you should um, not be... I mean, that film, The Imitation Game, was it called about Bletchley Park? Um, there's a portrait of Alistair Denniston. Um, yes, Alistair Denniston, who set Bletchley Park going, really. He's played by Charles Dance, I think, in the movie, who's shown as completely obstructive to Alan Turing. To, I mean, he's just played as, as a wicked kind of bit. And Denniston, this country, the Western world, in fact, owes quite a debt to Alistair Denniston for what he did. I would. I couldn't have brought myself to do that. Do you know what I mean? His descendants, his grandsons alive. You know, mm. I mean, he's just completely traduced. So I would. You know, I try. I would try to be honest if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the demands of fiction being paramount, and it seems to me that the that fiction itself is under some form of attack in our modern world. And you yourself have had a little brush with this. I think with this book in that, um, have you been criticised for daring to write in the voice of a woman? With Kay? No, I don't think so, but it's your right that it's a tricky time. Um, And obviously, I mean, it seems to me vital that a a novelist is allowed, or any writer for that matter, is allowed to get inside the head of any character uh, that they want any ethnicity, any age, uh, any sex, gender. You should be able to do that uh, and be judged on whether that portrait works uh, because we're in the business of imagination and empathy in the sense we, we are trying to what, imagine what it's like to be, well, in my case, a German rocket engineer, a WAF, uh, a French army colonel confronted with evidence of corruption, uh, you know, uh, a cardinal uh, in uh, Conclave. And that's it. That's what it's all about. I mean, it's, it's to try and bring alive another person. 
uh, and you should be judged whether you succeed or fail, but not, I think, be damned for attempting it. But Robert, I did want to ask you a little bit about your your background, your upbringing, how you first um, became interested in history, because I believe it was a childhood interest and that you always believed you were going to be a writer. Uh, Yes, my father was uh, a printer. And uh, almost my earliest memory is of going with him on a Saturday morning uh, when he was doing overtime. I must have been four or five or something like that, and being plonked next to the printing machine whilst he worked and being given a great pile of paper to play with of a sort you never saw in a shop, you know, those huge sheets and this machine going and the ink, the smell of it all. And that definitely got into my system and I wanted to, always wanted to be a writer and be involved in journalism or something like that. So that's how it started. And I was always interested in fact. Um, I used to write fake newspapers um, long before Donald Trump started coining the term. And I used to make ima- draw maps of imaginary countries and towns. That was the sort of thing that I used to do. So that was my uh, obsession, really. And yes, history always fascinated me. And the earliest books I can remember reading were history books. And, uh, you know, the past for me is... Uh, is the best guide to what is happening at the moment. And if you don't know what happened in the past, you won't make much sense of what's going on now. So, you know, that's what I was drawn to. And I I was drawn to uh, becoming a a novelist, not because I ever wanted to be a novelist. I didn't think when I was 15, oh, I must write novels. Uh, I just found that fiction was the best tool for me to express what was in my head, what I wanted to say. And that was fatherland because I was quite interested with this geopolitical idea of what might have happened if if the Third Reich had won, which one time it looked like it might. I mean, what would have happened? I found I couldn't answer that question unless I invented characters. And then when you invent characters, obviously something has to happen to them. So then you end up inventing a story. Uh, And from that point on, I've never... I've never written a non-fiction book uh, again. I've just uh, stuck to fiction because it's just, for me, the best means of expression. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that little boy would be proud of where you are now and on all the success you've achieved? He'd probably think I was an old fart, to be honest, and especially if he saw this uh, <laughs> room. Uh, Love the eagle in the background. Yeah, now I'm glad you brought the eagle up because I just want to say that that's that's from a church and it's uh, I think William the Fourth and it is not some terrible piece of memorabilia. Um, yeah, no, I think um, I don't know really. I never. I always knew I'd write, uh, but what form that writing would take, whether it would be fiction or non-fiction, play. I always wanted to be a playwright actually when I was a teenager, and I used to put on plays with my long-suffering friends who I'd make play performing them, and they're even more long-suffering parents used to come and watch them. Um, if you've ever seen the film called Rushmore, I am the boy in Rushmore. That's completely me. Um, well, Robert, was it, um, was it considered a practical career? I, I mean, it, it sounds to me like you came from a working-class background. W- did you know any writers? Did you know any playwrights? Um, or, or was this a, like, this must have struck your family as a, a wild fantasy? Yes, it did. I mean, um, I, my father wanted me to become a lawyer. Uh, he said if I was a lawyer in Nottingham, I could earn £100 a week. Uh, it, it, that's what he wanted me to do. Um, and then rather unexpectedly, because no one in my family had gone to university, I got into Cambridge. 
to read English. A thing I think, incidentally, now that fees have to be paid, that my father would have been very reluctant to agree to, um, it not being a way to a job, necessarily. Uh, and when I got there, I just did student journalism, and I got offered a job at the BBC. And then I think the fact that it was the BBC, uh, I would like, you know, my parents had heard of that and revered it, then it was a proper job. He always used to say, are they pleased with you? Whenever I spend, and are they pleased with you? <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, then then he was he was I think proud of the fact that I was working there, and then he was very proud of Fatherland when it came out, and Enigma. And sadly, he died quite young. So there were, there were only two novels of mine he ever lived to see. Uh, yeah, no, it was. Um, I don't know what he would have made of all the world now. I'm sometimes quite glad he's not around to see it, frankly. Oh, that's sad. Um, Robert, we, we are going to hand over to questions in one minute. I do want to ask you, because you seem like such an incredibly organised writer, writing from January to June every year, um, producing a novel at the end of that time. Have you got your next novel on the go? And can you tell us anything about it? I have an idea at the back of my head, but you can't really, as you know, say anything too much about an idea, especially when it's very, very nebulous because the slightest raised eyebrow uh, is enough to make you go and go no it's not going to work you have to you have to it has to be robust enough to be offered to the world before you can go ahead but uh, you know I love writing and uh, it's become a, uh, an obsession and um, so the moment one novel finishes I really want to get on and do another when I started writing novels they used to come quite with a big gap, three years, even five years. Now, you know, I feel time pressures. So, uh, you know, I like to write more. So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I want to get. And the the the, the crazy schedule, January to June, is simply that as I was a journalist, and I believe in adrenaline, and I used to write a weekly column. And whenever I researched the column for several days, it was dull. Whenever I sat down at my desk with that first clue in my head what I was going to write about, it would take wing. And in a, in a sense, I think that writing, all writing, is performance, essentially. It's like being a stand-up comedian. You get on the stage, you do your turn, and then you get off. And hopefully something sparks doing it. And uh, so I believe in the in adrenaline. It makes you see things quicker. And, and a bad way you otherwise not, not see um, Robert, we could go on for hours. Uh, it's been so enjoyable to talk to you and thank you so much for answering all of my questions um, so expansively. Um, I'm going to read some questions from our audience now because that is what we would normally do if we were sitting in a lovely theatre with a live audience. Um, there's a question from Pam here who says she read The Second Sleep during the first weeks of lockdown and it scared me to think that this could happen here. It was incredibly prescient, actually, Robert, Um that you you did write about uh, something like this, really, that could happen. Uh, yes. Pam doesn't really have a question, but I'm wondering, like, what do you think now, six months after that book came out, or a year after that book came out, do you think, my God? Yes. Uh, when, when, the, when the lockdown started, uh, I got a lot of requests, for, uh, you know, to, be, to inter- be interviewed or to write about it, and... Uh, um, I didn't want to do it, to be honest. I felt in some sort of superstitious way, like describing a dream to someone and then it comes true. You know, you feel in some silly, superstitious way that, you know, you kind of will the thing 
uh, on yourself. And there was this moment when the paperback of Second Sleep was delivered to me. And I remember there was sleeting rain coming down, the roads were completely deserted. The postman turned up with a mask and gloves, handed over this package. I had to wash my hands for the rest of it. And I did think this dystopia has gone too far. Uh, this is ridiculous. Um, I think, you know, I, a lot of my books are, are to do with this sense of dread, you know, that something is, is going to go wrong. You know, uh, the whole political system collapses in the, in the Cicero novels. Uh, the whole town is buried in volcanic ash in, uh, in Pompeii. Uh, the world is reduced to its medieval times by, by a computer failure in the second sleep. So, uh, you know, they're the sort of, you know, you work these fantasies out on the page, almost exercise them in a way. Mm. Um, and a, another person has asked on, on that topic as well, do you think that um, our current crisis could be a trigger for societal collapse or could it be a point for positive change? I'm, well, I'm by nature an optimist, so I think that there's certain good things are likely to come out of this. Uh, first of all, it will end. Uh, the worst plagues in history have ended. Uh, and this will this uh, this will end next year. Let's hope. And uh, then certain things are there will be benefits. I think. I mean, obviously, there's terrible economic hardship likely, but uh, on the other hand, I think that people have discovered the virtues of home. A lot of people and the pleasure of working from home, and actually, the fact that certainly, although most people I think wouldn't like never to go into an office, I think now people both workers themselves and employers recognize you can do an awful lot actually and that will save a lot of transport uh you know the hassle of transport and so on this is a a relatively small thing but i think an important thing in human evolution we are going to change you know there are big things going to come out of this pandemic you in history whenever there's been a a pandemic that's always led to some kind of upheaval um and, and the effects can both be bad and unexpectedly good. I mean, the boom in medieval cathedral building, for instance, is said to have come from the Black Death, from the, from the fact that uh, there were suddenly, you know, uh, uh, fewer people, <laughs> to put it bluntly, and there were more opportunities to build things. Uh, so, you know, something will come out of this, I'm sure. And um, we've lots of questions. I'm going to try and fly through them as quickly as I can. We have a, a listener or a viewer in Germany, Annette Katrina, who uh, is asking, are you considering any further novels on Roman history? And we have a few questions in on that, actually, I think. Uh, yes, I do have a couple of ideas. Uh, I don't think my next novel, but I would certainly like to go back to Rome. I think it's the most fantastic time and it's full of interest and character and it does shine a light on, on our present situation so the short answer is yes i would like to do that wonderful um jim wants to know do you know how many of the proposed ten thousand rockets were eventually fired um i think i would think about four thousand i think four to five thousand thirteen hundred were fired at london uh, more were fired at antwerp actually from germany but um killed fewer people at the peak of production, the Germans were building a V2 every 90 minutes. We should say, incidentally, it's worth pointing out that the V2 was a colossal military failure. It cost about 5 or $6 billion in the money at that time. Uh, it cost more than the Manhattan Project 
in, to build the atom bomb, but it had a minimal effect. It killed people, it frightened people. It just damaged an awful lot of buildings in London. Supposedly more than half a million were damaged, but it, it was never going to change the war. Hitler was wrong with this crazy decision in 1943 to go hell for leather to build the V2. Mm. Nick has a question. He says, it's, or it might be a woman, I'm not sure, but they are asking, it is often said that to ignore history is to repeat it. Do you think we have entered a period of ignoring history? Um, I think that it's, that's just, it's too simplistic to say that we ignore history because I think a lot of people really are very interested in history indeed. Um, and uh, so I don't think we ignore history. I don't know that history necessarily is any uh, panacea for our problems. Um, but I, what I think that history does, it doesn't so much stop us making mistakes as at least enable us to put our mistakes in perspective, to see that other generations have been through worse uh, and come through it. Uh, and I think it helps one to uh, spot fakes and phonies. Uh, doesn't stop them getting elected, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, well, we do have a question about uh, Trump. Somebody was uh, wondering if you see Trump as um, as fatherland, actually. Yes, I had an interesting chat with uh, David Runciman, the historian, a few days ago on his podcast, uh, who was struck by the parallels between the fictional president in um, in fatherland, Joseph P. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's father, isolationist, anti-Semitic. Uh, and pro-Nazi uh, with uh, Trump, and and had actually had actually Joseph P. Kennedy sort of been elected in the end, you know, America first, um, yeah, isolationist, uh, and all the rest of it. And it, I thought it was a very interesting point. Um, you know, there, um, there are certain characteristics of Trump which which are have recurred or occurred before, I should say, in American history. Mm. And another person wants to know, are you planning to ever do a sequel to Fatherland? If I'm financially desperate, uh, <laughs> yes. When it, The day the Fatherland sequel is announced, you can, everyone will be... No. <laughs> everyone, everyone can say, oh, well, okay, finally, yes, he really does need to pay off the mortgage now, doesn't he? No, I don't have we'll any... We'll send you a fiver in the post if we... Yes, <laughs> because I, I think that that book... You know, I don't go back and look at books that I've written. Uh, they're done. You know, you have to keep moving forward. Uh, I'm very grateful uh, to that book. It, you know, it, it, it's launched me, and uh, but I don't think I'd want to go back to it again. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd either discover that it wasn't very good, not as good as I thought it was, uh, or I'd discover that, that it was better and I can't do this well now. Either result is depressing. <laughs> There's another very specific question here, which I presume we'll be able to dispense with quickly. It's uh, this John, who used to live in Marlow. He wants to know the name of the big house that was used. Danesfield House. Danesfield House, which was called RAF Medmanham in the war. Danesfield House, you can go to. It's a hotel, swanky hotel on the Thames. And it's in that great tradition of big English country houses, which were used during the Second World War. Uh, another, um, Barry has sent a, a question saying, should Werner von Braun have been punished for all the lives that were lost by the slave labour of the production of the V2? I think he was very lucky to get away with it, yes. I mean, 20,000 people died building the um, factory and then 
more or some others also building the Vita, and he was uh, director of production or of, of or he was director of the rocket program, and he had an office at uh, Nordhausen where the factory was. So it's hard to believe that he didn't know what was going on. But the fact of the matter is, he was too useful to be prosecuted, and he was spirited out of Germany with about a hundred or more other Nazi. Or, or German, I should say, German rocket scientists. As I say, I don't think Werner von Braun was a Nazi. He wasn't ideological in any way, as far as I can see. He, he, want, he was fantastically, ruthlessly ambitious. He wanted to get to the moon, and it didn't matter what. Nothing was going to stop him. If he had to work with Hitler, he'd work with Hitler. If people had to die, well, they died. They probably would have died anyway, he'd have said. That was his focus. Uh, but he was lucky, and uh, certainly by 1969, by the time the Americans had, were landing on the moon, he was already starting to be eased out of the picture, and it was fascinating in the 50th anniversary coverage of the moon landing how little Werner von Braun figured in it. Um, another question here is, what is your favourite historical period? Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't, well, I mean, I've, every time I think, oh, well, I would never write about that, I write about it. And it's just simply a matter of, it's more the story that fascinates me. Um, I'm less interested in the Tudors than a lot of people are. Um, I never thought I'd be interested in 19th century France, for instance, but I found that a really riveting time to write when I did An Office in a Spy. Uh, and the Roman period is endlessly interesting. Um, you know, I, it's just sort of uh, whatever. It's a story, really, and the characters and the situation. And then for me, uh, it's always a pleasure to go into the past. It's like visiting, to use a cliche, another country and uh, learning its habits, customs, language. Uh, it's a voyage of the mind, uh, which is, as it's the only voyage one can take these days, it's just as well. Okay, one final question. Um... Okay, maybe we can squeeze two. One question is, uh, would you ever write about Russia? And the other one is, did you think that, did the Nazis think the V2 might force the Allies to the negotiating table so that the Germans uh, somehow stem the Soviet advance? So slightly connected questions. Yes. Oh, for the first question, I did write a novel about Russia called Archangel, which is uh, all about Stalin. And... Um, uh, it's finally overlooked among the books that I've written, but in many ways, I, it's my favourite. So, yes, I did write about Russia, and I wouldn't mind writing about them again. And um, what was the second question? I'm sorry, my oh, did, did the Do you think the Germans uh, oh. forced the Allies to negotiate? Yes, that must have been the aim. I, I, yeah, I think if they could have... I think Hitler thought that if he could destroy London, I mean, if these missiles could have rained down and hit Buckingham Palace, down Downing Street, Houses of Parliament, blasted out the centre of London, that the British would have been keen to stop. Uh, but it was never going to do that. And people like Werner von Braun knew. He carried a one-tonne payload uh, and at enormous cost in a rocket, and the Lancaster bomber carried six tonnes of high explosives. So, you know, it was the, the British were destroying cities night after night after night. Uh, the V2 terrified people and was an appalling weapon. But it was never going to destroy the whole of London. Robert Harris, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sorry we don't have more time. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. <laughs>